Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin here with King of the Universe, Teos Abadia. <laughs> is that is that too much? Does that um I mean that, you know I go too far? God Emperor of Dune was one of my favorite. No, uh, I I don't even know what to do yeah. with that, Sean. Um thank you. But I guess maybe that's but I you know, along those lines of being pumped up in difficult times, uh, it has been really nice to get some very kind comments from people uh i know you and i've talked about this uh but there have been some really nice i don't know if people are trying to make us feel better sending us virtual care packages via kind comments but it, it is really nice to hear and and it makes me think and i made a point to say in this show at some point uh you know please reach out to other people i think at least i'm now covered sean might need a, a little more tender love and care but but reach out to your favorite creators and and send them some nice thoughts uh, because because it does really make a huge difference uh, in these weeks and months. Right. Yeah. Even if you don't like me or like my work, just say you know have a good have a nice day. That that's <laughs> fine too. It's it's all good. Uh, <laughs> that's like code. So have a nice like day Ian time. Ian yeah exactly Ian via Patreon says I just wanted you to to write to both of you and say how much I appreciate your most recent 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 show covering the OGL fiasco. I think your moderate and measured approach is a good one and helps us all keep things in perspective. Thinking of you both and the many creatives who this impacts so much, all the best. So we've gotten a lot of messages like that. So thank you to Ian and thank you to all of those folks who are helping at least me keep my blood pressure somewhere in the 180 range yeah. uh, rather than higher. The, the, the footage of me, you know, tearing apart pillows at home just didn't seem like good podcast material. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Only if you need that special, like, fireball sound effect of the whooshing <laughs> of the feathers being spread all over the room. I mean, um, who doesn't? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, to be honest, it is tough for Teos and I to to talk about this because it's such a widespread, um, multifaceted issue that... You know, we can be on one side of, of an issue, but we can see someone on the other side just being ridiculous. Yeah. So it puts us in the impossible position <laughs> of trying to defend the indefensible, right. in, at, you know, in some cases. Um, so we do try to to look at all sides of, of things and keep things in perspective without too much um, too much bias coming into Right. to the uh the equation yeah and, and since we've slipped into the tweet bag toot bag patron missive corner you know there was a message that i, I didn't you know I was, I was almost like gonna add it to the show notes and i was like ah eh. that was sort of like you know are you guys gonna switch away from dnd or cover dnd less or cover third party more and you know it's a hard question because the, the truth is we we do love the game and and we love the designers that work on the game and and we love the history of the game and, and so you know and i don't think the 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 team let's say the corporation behind the game making mistakes actually should change that right in fact this is just like when tsr fell apart or, you know there there are times when the you know things go down and it's still worth covering and looking at it's just more painful to do so but we are still at the table having a best time and i don't think i said this in the podcast mm -hmm. i think i just said this to some friends but i was you know reading ben riggs book on history and the year that TSR does its best is the year that I started playing. And 
I had no idea, right? And in fact, people working at TSR had no idea that the company was going downhill. And yet they created some of the most amazing products after I began, right? So for me as a kid, every year was better than the previous one and almost always. And it was just, you know, amazing. And so it all just seemed great when in reality, the revenue or profit were dropping, the problems were increasing, the instability was increasing. So you never know kind of that sort of mix and one can still have an amazing time. And it could be that we've hit rock bottom, you know, in this current thing and we're about to turn it all around or there might be more rock bottom yet to come. But the game at our table is still fantastic. And, and so we do plan on right. sticking to that. We always want to talk about how amazing other RPGs are, right? And how amazing third-party creators mm -hmm. are. But it's hard to spend, you know, if, if we do 10 episodes on Dresden Files, it's, you know, I don't think that's going to serve everybody equally, right? So so there's a, a mix there right. we're trying right. to. I don't know what you think, Sean. Yeah. Yeah, but we will. We will talk about other games because we always have. We not necessarily have gone into great detail, but we've talked about mechanics or we've talked about themes or we've talked about the the mechanics of game design and where D&D has drawn inspiration from or where it has inspired other games. And we have a question later where well, we'll, where we'll get into that. And we'll also talk about it, you know, as we always do uh, when we talk about game design and, yeah. and RPGs in general. So we have a missive here from Patreon by Bent Goblin, who is releasing his first uh, release on the DMs Guild called Bent Goblin's Companion to Dragonlance Scales of War. And, uh, you know, Bent Dragon asked us to, you know, to, to take a look at it if we could, but to thank us for Know, being one of the inspirations that led to this release so we wanted to give bent goblin a shout out and uh you did a little bit more in-depth research yeah. into this than i did so i'm gonna let you take it over to us yeah so in our in our show notes you'll find a link to uh the product itself on the dm skilled uh, it's only a dollar 99 also to uh bentgoblinpress.com where the the i think the very first post you'll find there is all about this product and what it has. So it has a map and description of four locations and 10 NPCs, a battle map for a key adventure confrontation. And again, all of this is, is meant to help the DM who's running the Dragonlance adventure, right? Um, a, uh, a backstory of how the NPC Riss comes to be, a uh, table of facts, rumors, and gossip about Vogler, five ingenious gnomish inventions, and more. And one of the things that uh, the, the author prides themselves on, and I think rightly so, is they've come up with a kind of neat idea for sort of using these symbols and sort of bars that are in the layout on the side of each section that lets you at a glance know what this is providing to you and how to use it, which is a really neat concept. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, there's a lot here to look at. It's two dollars. Um, so pick it up, take a look, support a, a listener of the show and fellow creator. We also have via Mastodon this question from PhD20. What makes D&D D&D from a design rules perspective? Matt Colville said something along the lines of D&D will never be a classless system because it would no longer be D&D. I'm curious to hear where that line is for you two. You often offer example design solutions, and I'm curious if this question is ever part of your process. Uh, the answer for me is yes. All of this is always a part of the process. 
Um, you know, when you design for D&D specifically, you don't ask yourself these questions. But when you start thinking in terms of redesigning or designing a new game, you definitely think. Um, so, Teos, you want to you want to go first on what makes D&D D&D for you? I mean, it, it's a it's a tough question. There is a lot that is the the sort of skeleton of D&D, right? The 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 way you're rolling the d20 and adding modifiers the use of the ability scores and and the pluses or minuses derived from those the class system and the concepts the idea of the play style and how it's going to ebb and flow to go through encounters um that is all a p that's all D, D in a critical way and a lot of times when i'm designing what i'm actually doing <laughs> is I'm saying, this is d and I'm going to work off of that, right? Like, I'm going to bend it a little bit off of that because I know that that solidity is there and that the audience expects this. So if I can go a little bit outside, and so what I'm really doing is obviously, or often is consciously bending away from what d and is. And that d and is sort of solid enough as a structure and recognizable to players and DMs is what allows me to do that, which is what I really love, right? So, so those things and, and knowing how far you can push it really is neat, right? So if you're developing something like, you know, rules for mass combat um, is a good example of something where often people have attempted, whether it's official products or otherwise, to make mass combat rules, and they don't quite feel like D&D because it steps away from the, the, the iconic nature of the character the hit points, the, you know, attack rolls, it now becomes this representative thing and it's not the same. So I don't know if that helps, but that's kind of yeah. how I look at it. Yeah, I, I think I'm along the same lines. For me, it's two things that together make D&D. One is is the content of the fluff, right? It's the, um, you know, the magic missiles and the the gods that you worship to get your spells and, and that sort of thing. Married with the the kind of play that the rules produce, the pacing of the game, the narrative outcome of the game, the back and forth between the game master and the players. Uh, so you could definitely have a D&D game without classes, I think. Just like we're starting to see D&D move away from races as a mm -hmm. thing where you choose a race and you just get this menu of items. Now, removing a class would be a huge change. And some people would then claim that it's not D&D, because we were there for fourth edition, where even the slightest tweaks to the rules led people to say, this is not D&D, right? Wizards no longer memorize spells in the same way, so therefore it's not D&D, um, when of course it still, still is. So take the idea of rolling initiative during combat, then taking turns with the players and the DMs, each using roles to determine success or failures, uh, hit points being get lost and then regained, uh, the character, or the players having autonomy over their own character's actions, the dungeon master having autonomy over the rest of the game. All of those things, uh, all of that is D&D. &D. When you're using weapons, you're slinging spells, and it's in a fantasy environment. So you could use that exact same rule system of rolling initiative, using spells or weapons, having actions, and so on, but take it out of the fantasy world, put it in the sci-fi world. It's no longer D&D, &D, right? Now you're talking about Espergenesis. It's a 5e system, but it uses these other things. Now, it's also important to note that based on this definition that for me, Pathfinder is D&D. &D. 
mm-hmm. those OSR games from the past, they're D&D. Yeah. 13th Age for me is D&D because it still has that rhythm to it. Mm-hmm. It still has that sort of fluff in the background. And I'm not that's not a disparagement of any of those systems. It's just for me, that's the delineation between D&D or not. Yeah. Flip that around and you have something like Dungeon World right? Where it uses the fluff of D&D, it uses some of the same concepts in, in, its, in its stories and the telling of those stories. But since it uses the Powered by the Apocalypse engine, the pace and the narrative that evolves from gameplay is much different than that system of role initiative. DM does their thing, players do their thing, and then you go in the cyclical pattern. Uh, so you know, for me, Dungeon World's not D&D because it, it goes away from those game mechanics. And then we can get into various grades of, of those different things. Um, yeah. But, you know, so in terms of game mechanics, that's where it is for me. Yeah, no, that's really neat. That's a neat way to look at it. And, and it's interesting you mentioned 13th Age. Both 13th Age and Fantasy Age will be in our news. And those are two games that seem like very D&D to me. And, and I want to say they're different, but they feel very similar. And, and, and in fact, the play experience is almost defined by those little places in the play experience that differ, right? The escalation die of 13th uh, age or the stunts uh, and how they manifest in play and what they can accomplish in fantasy age. Those things deviate a little bit away from it, but the rest of it feels very D&D. Like fantasy age to me is like, a simplified D&D in a lot of ways, right? And so, so it's, yeah, it is, it is really interesting. And, and yeah. it's when you can't sort of easily say, well, there's this little thing that changes it, right? That's when it really isn't D&D because there are enough of those pieces that it doesn't resemble it. It, it may be a fantasy game, but it's a totally different system, right? Like Legend yeah. of the Five well, Rings, and that, and when I played that a lot, is not like D&D. I mean, yes, it's an RPG, but all of the, the the what the game's trying to do the the story of it the meaningfulness of different things that you do how your character's trying to do things it's very different and shadowrun as well right it's not a dungeon type experience sometimes people would write those kinds of adventures but they often feel a little odd because the system isn't really made to dungeon crawl it's made to smash into a place and get out right and that kind of thing and yeah yeah hmm. Well, yeah, it, it, it goes back to what you said originally with, you know, you start with the base and then you try to find ways to deviate slightly from it. That's that's what a lot of these, you know, D&D like D&D yeah. homages, D&D inspired games uh, do is they take that base system and they're like, OK, we're going to add these different mechanics. It'll give you a it'll give you a different experience, uh, but that all of the underpinnings are still there. Uh, for what a D&D game really is. Yeah, and it's a sign of the times maybe that you know this term has come up again uh, of uh, the fantasy heartbreaker, right? And this is mm-hmm. the concept yep. that someone will make a D&D game that's so much like D&D but has some idea of, well, this makes it different. And, and it's called the heartbreaker because often that whatever that little thing is that the person added doesn't make it worth playing for most people because well yes you had a right. cool clever idea but honestly i can just play D and could probably even port that idea over like you haven't substantially created something different right and that's a lot of games fail on that mm-hmm. yeah yeah and we're going to see a lot of new games being made 
and we <laughs> will see so. how far those new games deviate from that system. But that is a long conversation for another time. Um, a short conversation will be Jonathan Roy via Twitter asking, any chance you find folks would spend a little time uh, recognizing your favorite non-D&D systems and why? would love a breakdown of how you feel different dice or core mechanics affect the feel of the game. And that is, that is the million dollar question, Jonathan. Uh, so we're going to ask you, this is the last uh, episode where we're going to be covering the player's handbook for 5e in detail. So what do you want next? Do you want us to talk about different games and compare them to D and D and what the different mechanics mean in terms of gameplay? Do you want us to go on and talk about the Dungeon Master's Guide in terms of 5e and what we think might change and what are some of the good and bad parts of, of what it delivers? Is there some other topic you want us to cover in detail? Right, Those questions, we're going to leave to you, all our listeners out mm -hmm. there, whether you're just following us you know, on, on, on Twitter or Mastodon or if you're a, a patron, uh, we want to hear what you want to hear going yeah. forward. So let us know. That is our tweet bag, uh, toot bag, Patreon missive section. Let's get right into the news. And we are going to start mm. where everyone is expecting us to start, the OGL elephant in the room. <laughs> I think this is our like fifth uh, time that we've used that heading, but it's it, so it big. continues it's so big, the to elephant. be. Yes, it is a pachyderm of great girth and might. And... So since we last talked, we found out that D&D will solicit feedback on a revised OGL 1.2. So after all the hubbub of you know, what's been going on in a very weak statement from Wizards, we got a much stronger statement, including them explaining what are their you know, motivations behind changes and asking the general public to give them feedback. Uh, I'm running out of breath, Teo, so I'm going to let you... Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, one piece of news, that, you know, this is the kind of thing that always, that always cracks me up, is, is wizard staff changes, right? So I had heard the name Kyle Brink, and I was sort of thinking, like, is that who's in charge? You know, like, are they going to at some point announce this? No, they're not even going to really announce it, except that Kyle Brink is going to write this blog post saying, hey, I'm the executive producer on TNT, and let me apologize and start over with a new approach. Um, so I thought that was sort of, you know, like, hey, welcome to your first, you know, <laughs> reaching out to the audience. Uh, boy, what a way to have to do it. Um, Kyle, you know, lots of people say Kyle is, is, a, is a great person. So that's good to hear. Um, and well, they've got a tall task that they're taking on here. Um, the there were a couple of things that happened. So one was this post that was made to create a, a new conversation on the OGL. Um, and then the release of a OGL 1.2 and a survey for it. And we'll talk a little more about that. But as this was happening, we also had uh, a number of rumors come out that were seemed very concrete and YouTube channels carried them very loudly. And there was a lot of, of despair over these things. And this included that they were uh, that D&D was going to release a $30 subscription, uh, a homebrew tier. Uh, you, you had to pay enough to, to be able to do homebrew on D&D Beyond, that there would be AI DMs, and D&D Beyond responded to all these saying this is all false, and multiple people came forward to say this was all false, and particularly around one of the accusations was 
nobody is actually reading your playtest feedback for D&D 1. So a lot of people came back and said, hey, we're doing, you know, we, we really do look at the Unearthed Arcana comments. We, you know, changed how we approach Strixhaven, things like that. And, and so I think that was interesting to see that sort of wizards had been pushed so far back that they were like, okay, we have to actually respond to this. You know, we can't let that go. We've got to say this is not true. But it, it raises this question of how people are getting their information. What is the difference between journalism and, you know, someone told me. Um, and, and, and I think we're going to see that continue to pan out um, and play out over the next few weeks. Uh, and hopefully not longer. <laughs> um, but yeah, and any thoughts on that part of it, Sean? Yeah, the internet was created out of the ARPANET, which was created to, in case of nuclear disaster, make sure information was held in different places and could, would not all be destroyed all at once. And it's sort of now completely the opposite. The internet is there to destroy everything all at once with no sense of, you know, keeping information, truth, or, or anything else discreet from rumor or innuendo. Uh, yeah, I mean, th this, is, this is what makes me hate the internet, right? It, it makes me feel like I can't, I can't just focus on the truth and bring out the truth that needs to be seen right. because we're fighting against, you know, rumor mongers and people who are going to benefit from not only the truth of what happened, but the lies about what's happening and people, bad actors out there who are trying to, you know, recycle and reclaim their good name by also jumping on the wizards is horrible bandwagon. And we, we you know, you and I know these people and we right. see it and it just, it makes it hard to focus on what we need to, which is legally speaking, what are we going to be allowed to create mm -hmm. and what does that mean for our creations and the things uh, that we interact with when we play D and D that that's the important thing. And yeah, go ahead. Or is the important thing and, and really cast your mind millennia into the future when the archeologists of the future will look to the temples dedicated to the mighty algorithm and go at when, when did the algorithm rise as a God that we all served? Yes. <laughs> and we must be careful. Speaking not of king of the universe. Yeah. Let's please not create that yeah. future where it's the algorithm that drives everything. Uh, and, and, and so I, you know, listeners join us in trying to not let uh, the, the anger uh, and frustration be what drives all clicks uh, and all content and shapes everything in the internet. But, but unfortunately that's, that's where we are. Yeah. But and, and it's not that yeah. there aren't reasons to be angry and frustrated. There, there clearly are. Um, but there, there, there is always that need for intelligent discourse. So I, let's try to do a little bit of that, Sean, uh, and look at what the OGL 1.2 does. Because this is a pretty fascinating approach. Um, the OGL 1.2, first and foremost, is deauthorizing, revoking, whatever you want to call it, the current OGL 1.0a. So that right there is a deal breaker for a lot of people. Um, it lets you continue to sell anything you previously published under 1.0a, but that's kind of, I think, fairly impossible to stop. That sort of would be a, a very tough legal battle to try to prevent people from being able to sell what they previously could sell under a license. Um, surprisingly, it places some D&D &D rules into the Creative Commons. 
And that ensures that Wizards doesn't own that anymore. It's out there. Anybody can use it. Anyone can base things off of it. That's pretty interesting. Though when you look at it, it's primarily the core mechanics and those things that probably are legally not copyrightable. If we say that whole, you know, rules can't be copywritten. This is the type of stuff. So it takes very specific pages in the SRD and says, you know, these are Creative Commons, these are not. And anything Creative Commons, you don't need a license, right? It would be out there. Anyone can use it. Anyone can do anything with it. Um, these are sort of the general rules for mechanics. It's things like the conditions, it's XP levels, the definition of what monsters are made out of, sort of what the, what the you know, if you think about monster manual preambles, sort of those kinds of pieces. But there's a ton it doesn't include, like species, classes, subclasses, spells, monsters, deity pantheons. I mean, all kinds of aspects of the game that are the actual sort of crunch of it that one would really employ rather than the skeleton upon which that upon which that crunch holds. Um, Wizards has said more is going to be added to Creative Commons, but we don't know what. And so at least looking at it, it looks like, well, you know, if you were a creator and you tried to use the Creative Commons portion, I almost don't know what you would create other than like another game or just something completely mm -hmm. different you're developing. But when you can't even look at how a class and a subclass come together, I don't know what you really, you know, do with that. Um, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a little hard. And so what it really does is push you to say, well, for everything else, you need the SRD and you need the Open Gaming License 1.2. Um, before I go into that, Sean, any, any thoughts so far? Yeah, I I think it, it was a good, it's a good start. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it also shows that at the at its core, Wizards is is a business, and they have goals, and they're not they're going to tell us some of their goals. Mm -hmm. They're not going to tell us all of their goals because they don't want people. Uh, competitors, you know, others, to know what their business goals are. And if you have run or been a part of any business, you would be the same way, right? right? So it, it's showing that these rules, they're, they're recognizing these rules are not things that are of the utmost importance to their business. You know, whether they need to put it under Creative Commons or not is, is, is sort of irrelevant. It's great that they did. They may even add other versions of D&D &D to that, they've said, mm -hmm. uh, which would be really cool, right? That that lets people go back and do things that maybe they didn't know they could or maybe they thought they couldn't or maybe it was a legal mm -hmm. uncertainty whether they could. Now it's like, go ahead, do, do all the things. And that's a good first step. But in all of this, in all of this, it's going to be a long, drawn-out process yeah. of – uh, of give and take and what will they give and what won't they give and what will we as third-party creators give and what won't we give is well, is the crux of this issue and it's not going to work itself out in a day or a week or a month or maybe even a year this is going to be a long process do you think that wizards is approaching this as a uh, help us understand what you don't like so that we can move to that? Or was this their furthest position? And, and you know, like, like how much do you think they're willing to even adapt to the feedback in this survey? 
I would say that they are still working out. They're still writing their software, right? It, they're, they're, they're doing a play test. So let's look at all of this in terms of software, right? You sit down with your development team and you say, what do we need this software to do and how are we going to do it? Yeah. You make those goals and then you build your software to do those things. Then you send it out to, to beta testers or alpha testers. And you say, hey, use this. How, how does this work for you? What changes would you like to see made? Um, and what Wizards did not do is sit down and figure out how their users were going to use this. They just, they, they tried to put out their final version to their mass audience when they should have started with this process and said, all right, this is, these are our goals. Let's talk to our alpha testers, which would be like the larger companies or the larger individuals who use the open gaming license. And how does this work for you? Oh, this, the royalty scheme won't work. Your business will fold if you have to pay us royalties. Okay, cool. We'll get rid of that. What about this? What about that? Then you get all that settled. Then you put out to the, the beta test to everyone and say, this is what we've come up with. What do you think? Right. And they've, they've done it completely bass backwards. Right. And uh, so in, in a sense that then makes it harder for them to not show their hand in what is the most important and what is not to them. Right. Yeah. They got rid of royalties right away without a second thought. So we know it's not about that. All right. Then what is it about right. that you want to get rid of, of the open gaming license? Okay. Well, let's work. Our, <laughs> let's reverse uh, engineer this and we can figure out what exactly it is that. So, you know, it's, it's the same old story with any large business that you and I have both been in where people get ahead of their skis. People try <laughs> to do things too fast. They don't, think things through they don't consult yeah. their customers enough and and that's that's why we're where we're at very true well sean let me let me go into this wording a bit so 1.2 uh has yeah. a number of pieces to it one is it doesn't fully have or doesn't really spell out open share like wording so it doesn't really say the way that the previous open or the current open license says hey, you can declare your content to be open or some portion of your content to be open. Here's how you do that and where you add this. So it brings up a lot of questions as to what the license is, is intended to serve as a function. Um, there's languages that suggest that you can use any terms or it states you can use any terms you want for your content. So it's not clear whether that's really saying to me that I can declare things open. And if I do, what does that mean? And what does it mean that something else has been declared content in the past? So like if I published something yesterday under 1.0a and I declared a bunch of it open content, uh, someone today using the same license 1.0a can use that. But what about under 1.2? Can we still do that? Can we put 1.0a into 1.2? Um, can I declare a 1.2 work to be partially open? And can someone then use that? It's not really clear. Um, another piece is that while it says that, hey, anything you made under 1.0a, you can, you can continue selling, that doesn't have a lot of specifics. Like, let's say I need to revise it or update it. Can I do so? Or does it have to become 1.2? Um, if I'm in the middle of creating something, is there a timetable that I can get to wrap up my current projects before I have to switch to 1.2? You know, I don't, this is creating a lot of shock and confusion in the space. And so it would be nice if that was clarified. The 
language now for 1.2 says that it is perpetual, which means it doesn't have a stated end date. And it is irrevocable for a product you created with it. So if you publish a 1.2 product, it will remain so. But that's not really enough because they can still revoke or withdraw the license in a number of ways, the same way that 1.0, they are trying to remove it, whether you legally can or can't. Right. Um, and that's a huge problem, right? Because it means you can't, as a, as a creator of content, whether you're small, but especially if you're larger, you can't know that the project you're starting will get to finish. Or that if you create a product that's, you know, Tomo Beasts 1, that you will get to Tomo Beasts 4. Um, and you don't know what could change down the road. And in fact, they even have a severability language that says that if any part of the license is held to be unenforceable or invalid for any reason, Watsi can choose whether to have the entire thing invalidated. The typical language for something like this is everything else is still in force, right? So for some reason, they said, hey, you can't decide what, you know, proper content is legally, then the rest would all still stand. But Watsi gets to immediately go, you know, because that one little piece was removed, the whole thing should go, uh, right? And there are a number of pieces like that where, um, like if you are a creator and you mistakenly refer to something that isn't open, which happens all the time, um, Watsi sure. can choose to terminate the license for you, not the product, the entire license. There's nothing where you can correct your mistake. Um, and so, you know, wizards could do that. They could look at, say, you know, FISA were to publish. They could look at everything and find one little mistake and say, I'm sorry, your entire license is voided based on this. Would they do that? Don't know. But there's no reason for the wording to exist this way, right? Um, yeah. Class action suit rights are waived. Um, so that prevents anybody from coming together as an industry to say, hey, wait, this is improper, which given how small we all are a lot of times would be necessary right that's one of the reasons why class action exists is yep. to allow the little people to function as if they were larger people it's the little people that matter mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. and and there's some language that suggests that you know if you publish well it's 1.2 and and licenses should require an agreement it's it's that that's a little un, unclear as to what they when when are we agreeing to 1.2? Is it when we say so? Or is there some other way that they are really saying you automatically have agreed to it, which would yeah. really not be okay, and automatically agreed that 1.0 has gone away? Uh, print versus PDF, right? That's what they want people to create as print products or PDF products. Uh, but they get into language where um, they want to keep virtual tabletops from becoming video games is essentially the way it sounds. Um, so if your virtual tabletop only uses products, you're okay. But if they add animations to it, um, for example, that is moving in a direction that is approaching something that we now understand because of the language changes that that's what Wizards does not want you to do, mm -hmm. which tells us a lot about the direction where they're probably heading. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that, that's another thing. Yeah, they you know they say it's royalty free. The language isn't really there. That's interesting. And and what do you make of the the sort of hateful content, conduct, illegal activity pieces? Yeah, it's it's unclear. I'm no lawyer. Mm -hmm. uh, by 
by choice and by lack of intelligence. And I don't want to, I want to make my, make my role-playing games. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not a rules lawyer in D and D and I certainly not a rules lawyer here. So, you know, what this sounds like to reasonable folks, it sounds like, yeah, okay. They want, don't want people bringing hateful things into their game. The issue, of course, if you've been in a philosophy 101 class is right. Everything is in the eye of the beholder. What's hateful to one person is completely fine to another and vice versa and giving themselves the ability to say that hateful content is this or that means that they can take things down or suspend licenses, etc., for other reasons and say it was because they didn't like the, this term that was used in this uh, thing. So legally, it doesn't seem like it's something that anyone would want to get on board with uh, without some sort of oversight or give us time to fix it or right. you know something of that nature. Yeah, there are a number of, of cases here where, where a number of parts in the license agreement where you would think there would be some ability, some recourse to correct the issue. Oh, did I did I mistakenly refer to something that isn't open content? Cool, let me fix that. Um, give me the option to fix that, some path forward, not I can just decide to remove the the uh the, the you know yeah. your license for any future project products ever and um and they similarly have some language around protecting themselves from lawsuits uh to protect themselves mm-hmm. if somehow you if they were to use your product or create something that is like your product and some of that's understandable i mean any agreement these days sort of has that like if, if you join some sort of social media network it will say you know essentially that it has ownership the, the ability to sort of own and move and, and manipulate your content because otherwise you might sue for any small way that they misrepresent it. But this goes to the point where it's sort of saying, hey, you're promising you won't steal from others, uh, but but wizards, if somehow they did, and like, like if they were to use your work by mistake and put it in a product, you can only sue for your damages, which you have to demonstrate you, you don't get to go beyond that, right? You can't say like, hey, you guys made all of these sales based on what I did. You use my idea, I should get that portion, right? And that, that is just really shows this level of sort of protection that, that goes beyond protecting to sort of where it's unfair, right? It's one-sided. Yeah, I, I, this is important to me uh, because I've been on both sides of this issue. When I was in high school, I would send in ideas to Dragon Magazine or Dungeon Magazine, and I'd get the you know kind rejection. You know, this was a very interesting idea, um, uh, but we already have something like that happening. Or I don't think enough people would be interested in this. And sure enough, a year later, there would be an article that covers exactly what I had sent in, or something very similar. And I would be outraged and Wizards of the Coast, well, back then it was TSR, is stealing from me. And what I then came to realize when I became a creator and took in other people's work is that there are no new ideas under the sun. Um, You may think, and I may think, that this idea I have is the most novel thing and no one's ever thought of it. There's 10 million people out there creating Mm D&D content. Nothing that you're creating. It's highly, highly, highly unlikely anything you're creating is new. 
well, a new I... book comes out and they've got five they've got five domains, but they didn't put in the love domain. So therefore, I'm going to make the love domain. There are 25 other people right at that moment making the love domain and probably somebody at Wizards of the Coast working on it as well. Right. So in that sense, they need to have this in there. Otherwise, they would be inundated with people like me as a teenager railing against this horrible company that is stealing my stuff. And I understand that, but if I were to create lore for an area in the DMs Guild and create an NPC, or I draw a map that has never been illustrated to this level of detail before, and those things were to appear in a product, right? We would know what happened, right? And that's where there should be that, you know, the idea of saying like, and all you can do is get back your damages, you know, like, what are your damages? Well, my damages are probably zero, but you stole my work, right? Like you didn't damage me, but you right. you profited from my work, uh, oh. and 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 yeah. you did wrong, and and you know where's my <laughs> right? For yeah, absolutely, and you know we have seen instances where that came very close to happening, but the difference was one might have been on the DMs Guild, where by by publishing it. You are sort of giving up your rights to it, but you aren't. You, uh, so on the DMs, the license, but on the DMs Guild, right. it says if we have the right to you to use it on the DMs Guild or anyone else can on the DMs Guild. But if we right. were to use it in a product, we have to talk to you, right? We have to approach and, and negotiate a deal. Yeah, so exactly. If that were to not happen, exactly. Right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. So I don't know. The survey's out there. If you haven't filled it out, I think you have until February first, third, and now I forget. Um, I will look that up, but, um, you, you have, you know, only a few days after you hear that February 3rd is when it closes. So you have until February 3rd, uh, we included a number of links on people who break down 1.2 and give you different analysis of things like Justin Alexander shares his screenshots of the survey and what he thought about different sections. Um, so it, it is a very interesting piece here and we'll, it'll be super interesting to see where wizards goes. From here, once they have assessed the survey results. The main topic on Mastering Dungeons this week is the final look at the player's handbook. We're going to go through its appendices. Um, The first appendix is conditions. So what are conditions and why are they important? So last week when we talked about the design side of things, we looked at this equation where it said the player's hit points plus the damage that the players can do needed to be greater than the monster hit points and the damage the monsters monsters can do. It's a pretty simple equation. It's much more complex than that, actually. But if you just generalize in that way, right, we want the damage that the players can do and their hit points to be greater than the other side so we can have these combats that are tense, but that we know the players will most likely win. So what do conditions do in this equation? Well, what conditions do is they either make it more or less likely that someone will hit someone else, or they make it impossible for someone to hit someone else by taking away their actions completely. So all of these things, regardless of what they do, regardless of the riders that they put on or how detailed or how simple they are, they're really all just little modifiers to this grand equation. That's a good point. Um, you know, it's interesting. yeah, so it's interesting to look back at editions. And did third edition have a list of conditions? I know fourth did. 
I feel like third edition did. It might have. But, you know. Boy, going, we've been around a while. Yeah, going before that, right? These were things that just sort of like periodically would emerge from the game. Like spells would do things like blind you um, or something would hold you, you know, a hold person kind of thing. And all of that was was very fascinating in that it was, you know, almost like, you know, an individual thing would do an individual effect. But then over time, people would point to that and emulate that. And I'm, you know, it's it's fascinating to try to what the game has tried to do across the editions is to standardize those pieces, right? To try to allow yeah. us to have a common understanding of what the game should do to you, basically, right? It should incapacitate you, it mm-hmm. hold you, it should uh, stun you, knock you prone, and that should mean the same thing every time versus be that one time when you're knocked prone, this is what happens, and another time when you're knocked prone, it's really pushed over, and it's an entirely different thing, right? What are you finding in third edition? Yeah, I am finding in third edition that I don't see a list of conditions that mm-hmm. is pulled out like it is uh, in fourth and fifth. But there are definitely things that can happen in various ways. There are basically conditions without calling them mm-hmm. conditions. I mean, it's fourth like where I see it really powering. Comes... Yeah. Okay. Huh. And unconscious and prone and cow. I already said cowering, right? Mm-hmm. So all of those things are here. Cowering, I forgot. But about they're that. not as discreetly stunned as. Is something that you could yeah, have been in, in sure. third edition. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, so that's really so interesting. The it, answer it, is absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it existed, just maybe it had not become quite as formalized. It's, it's getting there. And I know fourth and fifth, you know, both have had all these like you know condition cards, right? That DMs would have, and you just hand it to a player and say, "This is what you're going through." Right? Really fascinating. Mm-hmm. The the little plastic tops to soda pop bottles became highly coveted in third edition because each cut that you would take the white one and that would be blessed and that you'd take the red one and this would be on fire and you would take the blue (laughs) one and this that would be stunned and you would put them on your minis to yeah yeah. and 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 that makes me you know i used goodies hairbands but the the the, that makes me Mm -hmm. think of the fact that one of the reasons fourth edition had so many of those little condition bands was that also they had a, a sort of condition which was that the ongoing save ends, mm-hmm. right? That was a thing that really demanded tracking, right? You are on fire. You're going to take fire damage at the start of your turn or you're marked or any of those sort of things. And so there were, there were a lot, there was a lot more of that sort of on off tracking that uh, really required some way to, whether it was a Leah tools or hair bands or pop bottle tops, mm-hmm. you know, any of that, it was really critical to, to track that, which is fascinating. And, and that's been simplified a bit right here. So so you don't quite have to do that. Sometimes you will see DMs do this still to mark the characters what they have. Um, or things like, there's some things that don't show up here that arguably could, like, I'm concentrating. Right? The mm-hmm. game tends sure. to avoid those things. And as you said, tends to focus on things that are uh, really being done to you, kind of placed upon you rather than you are self-choosing, which is interesting. All right? There's yeah. no stealth. So, things uh, like Right, exactly. There's invisible, but not hiding mm-hmm. uh, you know, as a condition. So you're right in that sense where it's, you know, the, these things that are sort of larger, not 
not temporary like hiding, but mm-hmm. more um, ingrained in the game. Uh, so we put all our all these conditions here and what they do. It really is telling that they tried to simplify, yet it's still not simple. No, it's a long list. Because, right, it's a long list. And if you ask someone, even someone who plays a lot, who maybe doesn't play a character that that does these conditions to other people, like what the difference between stunned and incapacitated is, mm-hmm. or poisoned and uh, poisoned and blinded, or, yeah, and blinded. what it actually right, what it actually means, not in terms of what's going on in the story, but what it means mechanically. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know something like uh, what was I looking at? Uh, invisible. You can't be seen without magic uh, or special senses. You're heavily obscured. Your location cannot be detected by, or can still be detected by noise or tracks, but it leaves out smell. <laughs> so you're, you're technically you could still, even though you're invisible, you could still be, uh, you know, detected by something with keen senses, like a wolf that relies on smell. Uh, disadvantage if you are invisible you have disadvantage disadvantage to attack invisible creatures but invisible creatures have advantage to hit so what if you're an an invisible spellcaster casting an area of effect spell should that not give you some sort of advantage does when does the spell that when does the fireball that erupts from an invisible caster actually appear and why is that not less yeah, yeah, more likely to hurt someone than if someone was shooting an arrow, uh, right? So we can really get into any or all of these and break them down in terms of mechanics yeah. versus story versus do we need all of them where there's overlap? Uh, you know, would, would it be a better game if we just had sort of three different conditions, mm-hmm. one that makes it advantage to hit you, uh, one that, yeah, uh, yeah, we could debate over it, but right. it's a right. it's an interesting game design and mechanical issue to grapple with. And speaking uh-huh. of grappling, Grapple. grappled. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, switching to the divine appendix B. This is, uh, I, you know, it's a, it's a fascinating thing because in previous editions, this would sort of tend to be maybe a multiverse picture like we get later, but deities i thought were sort of stronger within the whole of the text like sort of a bigger part and maybe it reflects our larger societies changes but here we get an appendix that really says hey the gods are so very important to every day (laughs) but they're in the appendix Mm -hmm. um and we're told about pantheons and every setting has Mm -hmm. one or more pantheons and we're then given examples forgotten realms has over 30 deities greyhawk has at least four or more different human pantheons where each pantheon represents the ethnic diversity yeah. and physical separation across the ages, right? So like in Greyhawk, you have yeah. Palor and Foltus that are both sun gods for different peoples. And so that's really fascinating, right? right? <laughs> yeah. 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 But there are also Sul and Oridian and Flan and Baklunish and Tuv and Olman oh. gods. Uh, uh, they're all humans. So they're all different pantheons. Then you add to that the non-human creatures, right? The elves have their own pantheons, dwarves, halflings, gnomes, 
then you get to giants who all have their own pantheons and then the undersea creatures and oh it just goes on and on and on which is why i think it's in the appendix <laughs> <laughs> yeah because otherwise it's a bunch of blimpedal poop yeah exactly that that <laughs> is the god of the is it kuatoa yeah i think uh, i think so it's it's it it is a whole thing but you know the the thing that's important i think for for me is that we as storytellers love creation myths uh we love backstories to our campaigns we love this nice sturdy lattice work of concepts that we build our stories on it mm -hmm. gives us a focus and it brings it all together with a nice tidy bow however the players they don't necessarily care i would go as far as saying most players don't care about your particular pantheon and what that means or your network of gods i know it's so sad uh what they want to know is how does it affect me and what my character can see what they can do what they can change in this story so what i think this appendix tries to do without saying what it tries to do is to say to the players listen your dm is going to have their own origin myths their own gods they may make their own they may use some of these they're important so we want you to understand why your dm wants you to care about this uh so here's here's some ways in which they may be important. Keep them in mind, but listen to your DM because your DM is going to be the one that hopefully brings all this and puts it in front of you in a way that's exciting and that's engaging. And I, I love what you're saying. I feel like this the game, the edition, is underselling deities and these creation myths and the fun of it. And I know that, you know, for me as a kid. Uh, having read Greek mythology and thought, you know, it was amazing and all of that. Like, like I wanted to have those kinds of elements. I was ready for that, very receptive to this concept of playing in sort of mythic worlds. And so D&D &D seemed to have that to me kind of throughout the work of it. And at the very least, I'd like this place to say, yes, here you can do this. Here's how to do this. Here's what to expect from the world. Here's how to interact with that. Here's how to make the most of it. But I honestly would also like it at each class or even at the species level, right? To, to tell me more about how to make this a cool part of the story if I want to, because I mean, we're talking about a world shaped by deities where deities can walk the, the setting and shape it all the time. Like how would that not be like enormous, right? <laughs> like don't pray at your own risk, right? right? Like it, it's so huge. And so you know, we, we downplay it, I think, too much for where it should be for most settings. And, and putting it in the appendix, I think, downplays it unless you, you know, probably regardless, but at the very least, you know, give it uh, more of a, like, help the player understand what to do with this, I think, and how to play off of what the DM's doing. Yeah, yeah I don't know if I said this outright when I just rambled on there for a while. But I think it does belong in the Dungeon Master's Guide because yeah. the Dungeon Master is going to use it in so many different ways. Um, you know, like I said, the, the, the Dungeon Master is the one that has to make the players care about this stuff. So I am totally behind. Heck, have another Deities and Demigods book 
you know, that was a that book was loved yeah. by first edition players and DMs. Mm-hmm. Now, I read that book and then I went to college and I I took a Greek and Roman mythology class as a freshman that mostly seniors were in. I didn't even we read Ovid and we read Hesiod and and I knew most of it from the Deities and Demigods first edition book. And it was wonderful. Yeah. I mean, it was informative. It was, you know, engaging. But it still comes down to the game master being able to do that. And the game does need to explain it. I don't think it needs to explain it in the player's handbook. Yeah. Uh, because if you say how important gods are, gods aren't important in my game. And and maybe even there aren't any, uh, and so yeah, you have a domain, but it that doesn't come back to any god. So no, you don't need to uh, you know pray every day to and, to when you leave the yeah, room to right. get out safely. And and that's interesting, you know, to compare against say Thirteenth Age, where Thirteenth Age takes these different. Um, different groups they're largely deities but not solely so but they're sort of powers in the world and there is both a die that you roll to determine sort of how things can shape towards one faction or another but also your character is aligned with certain ones and has enmities or friendships towards others and that means that there's constant interplay in the world or at least there can be it's suggested that there be this interplay constantly between the different forces and, and if I go back and read things like, say, Temple of Elemental Evil, there is this constant infusion of the gods, right? Of St. Cuthbert, of mm-hmm. the temple, the cult of elemental evil and what Ayus. it actually represents, and Ayus and Loth and all these little bits and pieces. And they're all coming together in really fascinating ways that enrich that story. Mm-hmm. And I think we're losing that a bit. And so I, I would I would take a lot of this material, chuck it into the DMG, as you said, but put instead in the player's handbook the sort of the, the instruction manual on how to use what you're going to get out of the setting right the setting will have these kinds of things probably or you can bring this into the setting uh let's see what do we have next we have appendix c the planes of existence so what do we have we have the material plane this is where we all exist and our nice happy little worlds whether it's forgotten realms or Greyhawk or eberron and echoing the this material plane are two realms, the Feywild and the Shadowfell. They occupy the same space, but they are um, sort of distillations of what we go through in the real world. So the Feywild is positive energy, the realm of fairy. The Shadowfell is the plane of shadow, of darkness, of death. And they when you enter them, present you with this sort of distilled and distorted version of the world that you're used to, your material world. Yeah, which is really interesting. And really interesting given that you then have the positive and negative planes that sit like a two-sided dome over the other planes, one being radiant, one being necrotic. And we do so little with the positive negative planes and, and haven't done much with them throughout D&D's history because they're sort of so absolute that if you go there, you either like explode with life or are drained into an undead husk. And so it's almost like, well, why do we even have that exist? <laughs> because it's so like, I wonder if these mm-hmm. concepts should be merged. Yeah, I, I, I feel like they are. I feel like they I feel like we started with in first edition, sort of the positive and the negative planes. But as you said, they were basically uninhabitable. 
Mm-hmm. So since we need places where the players can actually be and interact with, let's make the Feywild and the Shadowfell the, these things. And that becomes these neat places where you can actually explore and tell different stories and have different mechanics taking uh, part in the game. Yeah. So then we hear a little bit about beyond this material plane and, and, and that concept of the material plane, you know, is fairly changed where the, the idea of, you know, one prime versus many primes. Now it's sort of the material just covers all of those settings. Um, we just got the material plane. And then going beyond that, we're told that is a mythic destination, a legendary journey. You can use spells like plane shift or gate or portal to get there. And we have two transitive planes, the ethereal and astral. And spells can help you cross into these. We're told the ethereal plane is a misty, foggy realm like an ocean. Its shores are the border ethereal overlapping the material plane and inner planes. And every location in the material or inner planes is overlapped by the border ethereal. So sort of that similar Feywild Shadowfell concept, but now as a sort of shore along this ethereal sea. And then we have another sea, the astral plane, which is the realm of thought and dream. And here you can travel as a disembodied soul to reach the outer planes beyond. So there's sort of gateways to the inner and outer outer planes, um, which is super interesting. And the astral plane has swirling wisps and floating earth moats and whirlpools of color. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Yep. So the inner planes then are the four elemental planes, the plane <laughs> of air, earth, fire, and water. Uh, they form a ring around the material. And they are suspended within the elemental chaos. Uh, These elements combine and appear like worlds that we may be familiar with. And then further away from from the proximity to the material world, they turn into areas of the pure element. So at the furthest point, they become then the elemental chaos. So you might be able to go to the city of brass on the... um, uh, the air elemental plane or is it fire 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 it's fire thank you fire elemental plane right and buy strange and exotic things from ifrit or fire salamanders and i, I like this but as the further a, away you get you will just be burned to us yeah husk. yeah and i like that as a nice compromise because sometimes when you read like the original manual of the planes it was sort of like when you travel the plane of elemental earth you might just show up in the middle of earth and you're dead because you can't breathe because you're just entombed. <laughs> you know, roll on yeah. this table to determine whether that happens, unless you happen to you know specifically have a safe gate or something like that. You've been there before, right. and and so this takes you and gives you some uh, you know a nice variation, right? You can be closer to the nexus point and have the um, that it looks a little more like a normal world, but you know maybe canyons and stuff like that, or you can go you know, all the way to the raw elemental chaos and <laughs> be entombed in Earth if you really want that experience. Yeah. So it's always, it exfoliates. Uh, <laughs> the outer planes, then, are the divine planes where the deities live. Uh, they're often uh, concepts that change on the whims of the powers that dwell there. The upper planes are very, generally of good alignment or always a good alignment. The lower planes are of the evil alignment. And in the middle, you get various grades of neutrality between good and evil, law and chaos. Uh, The distance is meaningless and malleable for the most part. Uh, You might traverse the nine hells in a single day, 
or take a week to cross a single layer. We saw that with uh, descent into Avernus. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, what about we, some other planes out there? Yeah, we get to a table with the 16 most well-known planes, which is a nice way to say, you know, th there can be many others. Uh, but those 16 correspond to the eight alignments, excluding neutrality. And that's because neutrality takes us to sort of sigil and the outlands. So the outlands are uh, a place between the outer planes. This is like a circular structure, like a great wheel. You have 16 gate towns that are settlements built around a portal to one of the outer planes. So you know that you can always go to that one place. If you're a planar traveler, you can always go to that one town and go to that place. And that town, uh, and we talked about some of these towns when we were reviewing a Planescape product not too long ago, but each of them is sort of supposed to mm -hmm. capture the feel of that plane in terms of what its temperament, its, its alignment is like. Um, and then at the center is this spire shooting impossibly high into the sky. And above those, you know, that point of this spire is the ring-shaped, torus-shaped city of Sigil, the city of doors, and this is a bustling metropolis, countless portals to other worlds, and trade all across the plains, and everybody can meet there and do things. Um, fascinating place, which perhaps we'll see in the Planescape product when it comes out. Yes, I'm sure we will. Now, there are some planes called demiplanes. These are small extra-dimensional spaces with their own unique rules created by spells or by powerful beings. Some might be natural, some might be temporary. Demiplanes, I tell you, game masters, are your best friend mm -hmm. because you can tailor them to do anything that you need your story or adventure to do. So you don't have to worry about, oh, in Descent into Avernus, it said that you know the first plane of the nine hells was this, and this always happened. You can just say, well, I'm going to make a demiplane because I want some of that, but I also want this to, to you know, this other thing to happen. So I'm going to make a demiplane. Just be sure that when you do make your demiplane, you know, you give your players the opportunity to experience these things and understand these things and come to know these things because they will appreciate it more rather than having you just spring some sort of nasty surprise on them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then we have the far realm, which is beyond the known multiverse. And this is almost the opposite of demiplanes. If demiplanes are those super accessible, have fun with this as a DM, tinker all you want, toy all you want. The far realm is sort of like, you can't really touch this because it's so beyond our known multiverse and so tainted, so corrupt that really what you do to play with it is express how energies or elements or sources are leaking into the prime or other planes, the material plane or other planes, warping them. So there tend to be no known portals. Yeah. The few that have existed have disappeared. And, you know, any intrusion is really the subject of adventure. The problem with running games that touch on the unknowable and the unimaginable is that your players can't know or imagine them. And as soon as they do know or imagine them, they are no longer unknowable or unimaginable. Mm -hmm. So that's why the far realm is left to be where things come from and not where you go to. Yeah. Uh, if you want that kind of like an experience, then you're better off going with a demiplane the way that uh, Ravenloft does, right? Because you can give examples of sort of that tainting nature without being 
the absolute that one can't imagine. Yep. Uh, Appendix D gives us creature statistics. So these are the statistics that druids will use when transforming into animals or getting animal companions. Uh, creatures that serve as familiars will come from this list. Uh, undead that you create via certain spells in D&D will come from this list. So this is just there because it's things that are in the monster manual, but players also need to access them. So here they are in the player's handbook. And you know what I like about this is that when you look at this sort of stuff as a new player, it might inspire you to become a DM. At least understanding what the DM is is going through, what the <laughs> DM sees when they're when they're running their yeah. part of the game. All right, our final, and the final appendix. appendix is Woo! inspirational reading. Uh, the The first edition Dungeon Master's Guide had a long list of inspirations for the game and. The Appendix E here in the Player's Handbook has some of those same, plus a bunch more um, that you know that the team used. More diverse authors, more diverse set of authors. Uh, but you know, I'm sure there are shows out there, podcasts out there that go through this one by one and oh, yeah. read them and discuss them. But you know, we all draw inspiration for our games from different things and this is a as good a list as any if you want to start by looking into what uh, some of the creators of this edition of D&D have have uh, drawn inspiration from yeah so you know Sean looking back on this I mean the the fifth edition player's handbook has to be one of the better ones out there right I mean it, it is you know, as, as much as we've applied a lot of critique to it i mean it is really an exceptional player's handbook right and and for all of the reasons we've talked about all these this series but uh but it is worth stopping and pausing kind of acknowledging that like this is a a, a really well-crafted book um other than the uh the uh table well, not the table of contents the um the page numbers the <laughs> the page numbers are a bit of a yeah. disaster at the, the end index? The, uh, the index but um, yeah. but it really it has so much to it. And, and I think it takes there was an approach to how it was crafted that really has worked well and helped um, help this game. And, and if I think of, you know, which core book resulted in this edition being a success, uh, you know, this is the book of the three that I would pick. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you can tell that this edition was built through constant feedback from the larger audience, um, that it took mm -hmm. instruction, that it took direction from people who have been playing since first edition days to people who right, just came in with fourth edition and wanted to see parts of their game get uh, brought forth into the new edition. Um, you can tell that that's, that was one yeah. of the building blocks of this particular book. Yeah. And then speaking to some of those All designers, right. I, I heard that too, right? That the, the goals, one of the biggest goals was this accessibility, this appeal to both a new person who's never seen it and to someone who's played with any of those previous editions, right? They do that. Mm -hmm. For sure. So now we're asking you again, where do you want us to go from here? Continue with the 5e books, Dungeon Master's Guide? 
start looking at other games, start looking at other adventures, start looking at something else completely. We want to know what you want. So you can let us know. You can let us know through a variety of ways. You can become a patron of the show to talk to us directly. And thank you to the patrons who are out there right now. Thank you to our Masters of Dungeons supporters. A special shout out to our Master of Realms supporters who get their names in our show notes. And thank you to our Masters of the Multiverse patrons. We're going to talk about you right now. John Wilson, Graham Ward, James Walton, Joe Tyler, Krishna Simonse, Chance Russo at Dragon Russo, uh, Falcon Neal, the Micro Ant, Eric Mengi, Adrian Marquez at Post Fiction RPG Audio, Travis Lee, Brian King, Sean Hurst, Ben Heisler and Paige Lightman, Andy Edmonds at the Nerdronomicon, Robin Dermy, Darren Chandler, Evil John, Steve Bissonette, and Craig Bailey. Thank you so much for being masters of this multiverse. <laughs> you can also talk to us via other methods such as going to our, uh, well, of course, our, pa- our Patreon. You can also go to Apple Podcast and leave a review and let us know what you're thinking. Uh, you can also subscribe via YouTube to see our beautiful faces and leave us some comments. So, Teos, where can people find you and your work? Ooh, find me at alphastream.org. From there, you can reach my YouTube and other efforts on Mastodon at, at uh, alphastream at dice.camp. Twitter, I mainly use it to send stuff out because the third-party app support is gone, so I can't easily look at tweets. What about you, Sean? Where do we find you? You can still find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin or the podcast on Twitter at MasteringDND. I am also on Mastodon, as is the uh, podcast. The podcast is at Dice.Camp, and I am at Tabletop.Social as Sean Merwin. Uh, And you can, of course, always go to the YouTube channel where you can see our beautiful faces. So, Teos, we just got through the 5e player's handbook. What are we going to do now? Go to the demiplane of rest. Go to the demiplane of (laughs) bourbon. (laughs) No, kids, don't do that.